Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented by FL Montreal, as always. Dan Delmar and Mike Newton with you. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Today, uh, I'm really excited to speak to an entrepreneur whose business has made the news in recent years. They are the Quebec sort of um, competitor to Uber, DoorDash, and other big uh, rideshare and delivery conglomerates. Eva Co-op is our profile today, and we'll be speaking uh, with co-founder Dardan Isufi. So really exciting to see a, a local tech solution to what has really been a, a behemoth and something very controversial that, that does take, uh, you know, some of these companies take a lot of tax dollars out of Quebec. Yeah, I think a lot of these companies, not only taking the tax dollars out, have created an awful lot of stir in terms of how things get taxed and how things are addressed. And, you know, it's an interesting angle to say that, you know, this is a tech play uh, Eva, in, uh, on a co-op, which is a really old basis of doing business, uh, you know, in, in the community within Quebec. So it's a very interesting melding of old and new uh, in, 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 a, in a new world problem. Mm-hmm. Co-op with a social mission. Uh, very interesting to explore uh, the, those themes. And uh, Peter Joseph Moreta's tax partner at FL, by the way, stopping in later in the show to explain the co-op model. So if you're interested, if you've been thinking about this for perhaps your business, um, he'll enlighten you as to the implications there. As usual, though, let's start, uh, Mike, with our thought leadership segment news and notes and uh, certainly someone who's not interested in co-ops would be mark cuban the shark investor and billionaire and uh, these are his pieces of advice for the dumbest things entrepreneurs do so i'll write i'll run through the list really quickly and, and you tell me your thoughts or at least a couple of them um, not understanding business basics um, thinking competition equals validation and pegging your success on one star employee um what are your thoughts on uh, on Mr. Cuban's basics there? Well, opinion on Mark Cuban aside, uh, you know, the, the, the interesting component of all of this is, uh, you know, you're talking about some pretty basic uh, understandings of, of entrepreneurial side of things, not understanding basic businesses. You know, we've had a few guests on in the, in, in the past little while who, you know, you wouldn't think understood business basics given the the style or where they came from or the type of businesses they were running. And I'm always fascinated to find out that, you know, uh, the successful entrepreneurs get it. And, you know, they understand that they need cash flows, they need projections, they need to have a strategic plan, they need to see what the implications are in the community. So, you know, understanding the basics about having, you know, and it doesn't mean having a business degree by any stretch, right? It's having some kind of input and understanding of how a business runs and what the implications are and not, you know, I've used the term before navel gazing that, hey, I've got the greatest, uh, the greatest idea here. And no matter what happens, it's going to work because we've seen really successful products fail and some really questionable products succeed based on uh, people's ability to, to understand business. Um, you know, from a competition standpoint, I mean, there's a, there, there was a book, uh, you know, uh, Red Ocean, Blue Ocean, and I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read it. It's kind of fascinating in the discussion in the sense that, you know, uh, that when, when I'm talking about competition, people think that because somebody's come in to compete with them, they uh, that validates the business model they have or validates the product. And if you read, uh, you know, Red Ocean, Blue Ocean, you you basically see that once you're in Red Ocean, and this is, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tie this into the Mark Cuban shark thought, uh, Red Ocean is exactly what it sounds like. It means there's a lot of people fighting over the same pie and there's a lot of blood in the ocean. Whereas if you can move away constantly into Blue Ocean, what you're doing is you're finding yourself standing all alone with a product. 
So just because somebody has a similar product or a similar service, one of the big boys comes to town and our guest today is a perfect example that, you know, Uber uh, coming to town and, and, or ever, competing with Uber doesn't validate what they're doing. They still need to understand that they've got a business to run and provide something other. And I think that's what we'll see from our guests today is they're providing a very different twist on an existing technology. Indeed. And when you're up against a competitor that, that's that's that ubiquitous, I mean, you have to have a solid business model and, and something else, something that they are not offering. So looking forward to see what our guest has in, in that respect. Yeah, the David and Goliath strategy is not necessarily a good business one where you can walk around and saying, well, you know, buy from me because I'm a small guy and I'm local. That doesn't necessarily work. There's got to be a lot more to the offering than that. This in the New York Times. Do you know who that worker you just hired really is? Especially when people are hiring remotely, uh, that could be something. Um, obviously, a lot of dishonesty, a lot of fakery can happen in a virtual or remote setting. Um, and any, any interesting stories you've heard over the past few months of uh, people uh, not quite getting the worker they expected? This is one of those stories where, you know, you have to change the names to protect the not so innocent. Uh, no, the reality is, I think we're, we're, we've always dealt with this from an employment perspective. And, you know, everybody was always taught at the end of the day to embellish a little bit. And, you know, somewhere between embellishing a little bit and flat out lying is really the employer's job when they're going through uh, the CV to try and validate, not only when they're initially looking at it, but when you have that opportunity to meet somebody. Those are those areas that you really got to kind of focus on is trying to find, you know, even if it's remote and you're doing it over your computer screen, those things that you question that maybe seem a little bit too good to be true. You've got to find a way to work that into a into an interview or into a question to make sure that, you know, you're getting the reality. I mean, we were taught, I mean, let's face it, the article talks about, you know, when grandma came over with a sweater you didn't like and and mom and dad always told you to say, oh, that's a great sweater. And, you know, we've taught people to, to lie their way because there's money on the table. Well, it's no different when it comes time to a, a job interview, especially in a world right now where, yes, there's a big battle for proper talent. But at the end of the day, if, you know, if, if, if you don't have to have the skills of everybody else you know lying is probably not the best way to go and you need to find a different way uh and whether that's personality uh, I, i've said for years that most young university graduates have been schooled so well on passing an interview that the interview itself is almost today i don't want to say it's a useless process but it is a very skeptical part of the employment uh, exercise because they've they've learned how to play that game to the nth degree. That's interesting. And is it necessary to throw some curveballs into interviews? Uh, what, are you, what are you advising people to sort of get at that deeper truth? Well, I think you you know the the one thing, and it's a very hard thing to do, is you know I I'm always big on body language and uh, understanding where somebody's coming from and that exercise. But you know, like anybody else, you know that 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 sense of desperation in a, in a potential employee's eyes or their mannerisms leaves you to question whether there is some fishy behavior going on behind the scenes. Um, you know, right now with job openings high and unemployment low, many co companies are scrambling to find talent. So they're not doing their due diligence the same way they normally would when they had a throng of opportunities uh, in front of them going, hey, you know, I'm going to pick the best one and I'm going to fish my way through the exercise. So I think from an employee's perspective, it, it, it's a skeptical market right now. And, and as much as that's easy to say, you know, when you're when you're when you're scrambling for staff, you still have to make sure that you're spending that time and effort on your due deal and maybe focus even more so today on interpersonal skills and the person on the other side of the microphone or the other side of uh, your office uh, and less a little bit less on uh, on the university degree and the uh, and the CV in front of you. 
And lastly, Mike, skills-based hiring is on the rise. What does this mean exactly? So we're not talking about, obviously, uh, qualifications, but other skills that may not be uh, formally credentialed? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a push away from uh, university degrees or postgrad degrees into uh, skill set individuals. So somebody in a tech world where you would normally say, hey, I'm only going to hire, hire an employee if they have a university degree in programming. Um, people are really looking for those people that have experience now in programming. And it doesn't have to be that uh, that exact degree or no degree at all. And it's providing a very interesting, the, the whole COVID environment has really had us rethink education and where it's going. We've all known for years at one point, you know, when you grew up in the fifties and sixties, if you didn't have a high school degree, you never got hired. Well, then you didn't have a university degree. You never get hired. And then you never got a master's degree and you didn't get hired. Well, there seems to be a push going backwards now to skill sets, trade schools, and an environment that is very different. You want to go enlighten your brain, go to university. But if you want to get a job, maybe that skill set environment, and there's a lot of kids in their, you know, late twenties and uh, maybe, sorry, late teens into their 25s and 26s are rethinking whether they want to go the school route or whether they want to go to a trade route. And I think a lot of employees are really starting to look for skills much more so than just uh, the CVs. Including in the tech space. And if you can code, you can uh, perhaps create something as revolutionary as Eva, Eva Co-op. And uh, our profile today is Dardan Isufi, the co-founder of Eva. Dardan, welcome. Hey, nice to be here. How are you? Excellent. How are you? Good as usual. Excellent. So, I, you know, my very first question to you, I got a good chuckle out of this, is, you know, how does the University of Laval software engineering student and a poli-sci student from McGill start and build a company after having met during an internship in Saskatchewan? Sounds like the beginning of a really bad joke. So maybe give us a little bit of feed as to how this all got started. Well, yeah, essentially, uh, Raphael Godreau from uh, Laval University and myself were good friends. We met uh, back in, I think, 2014 or 15 in Saskatchewan in Regina, while we were there for an English learning program. And uh, we were two people motivated by all the transformations that were occurring in our uh, societies. And back in 2017, uh, if you remember, Uber uh, was negotiating with the Quebec government in regards to you know, all the taxi license and whatnot, and uh, should the Uber drivers get a spe specific training to drive and at some point, Uber mentioned that they wanted to leave the province of Quebec. And we saw this as being, well, something that was uh, illegitimate. And also that you know, we were seeing all of these fundamental transformations with you know, the digitalization of the economy and uh, the service delivery. And then we, you know, we asked ourselves how to rethink these manifestations of the new economies. You know, Uber was referring to itself as being this new sharing economy, uh, but then uh, it wasn't really sharing economy. If you look to what drivers were getting at the end of the day. So uh, back in 2017, uh, my good friend Raphael and myself were, uh, I guess, uh, exchanging on, on Facebook or something. And we were like, well, if Uber is, is leaving Quebec, let's start a new Uber. That was the initial thought. And that night, uh, I took my car and I drove to uh, uh, to Quebec City. Uh, I just you know I, at the time I was uh, working at the Royal Montreal Regiment as an infantry uh, military officer. And I just called my surgeon, you know, asking for a permission to leave for the weekend. And uh, we met at I guess McDonald's at like three a.m. and uh, we started thinking of how we can replace Uber by building a more sustainable model that will actually uh, empower the drivers because drivers 
they sit at the core of the ride share and now delivery business. And we've seen with the pandemic, these are essential workers. These people provide essential service on a daily basis. So how can we build an ecosystem that actually empowers them and helps them uh, while you're serving the community? So this is, this is how this, this whole entire EVA thing started uh, a couple of years ago. Fascinating beginning. So maybe let's just go back to the bare bones here. What exactly did you start as? I mean, we talked we talked about ride sharing. Uh, we've talked about a mobility platform. What exactly does Eva do? Well, essentially, Eva is a mobility platform, both for ride share and delivery. In Quebec, we're organized as a co-op, uh, bringing together more than 60,000 rider members and nearly 4,000 driver members crisscrossing the streets of Montreal, Quebec City, Saguenay, Mont-Tremblant, and now we're launching and we're expanding into other markets. Essentially, it's on the one end, an app for getting from point A to point C with a stop at point B, let's say. On the other end, with the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's a delivery service that integrates uh, with any transactional website, online ordering website, to deliver goods for restaurants and retailers. By doing both rideshare and delivery, uh, EVA places itself as a key mobility factor in uh, the province of Quebec. And what's great about the app is that uh, it's entirely based on a decentralized protocol or a blockchain, uh, allowing public access to the database while uh, having inherent encryption of all nominal data uh, to essentially to enable us to scale up uh, across different markets. Our goal uh, at say EVA as, as, as a movement in, in Quebec, where you know, we started, our goal is essentially to improve the lives uh, of our members, especially uh, driver members with you know, local, with social and responsible mobility. For rider members, these are cheaper prices. So there's no surge pricing and all these you know, prices variations. And for, ride, and for drivers, it's better revenue. Uh, at the end of the day, we're ensuring, we're making sure through various programs that drivers get a fair revenue and a, I'd say a sustainable revenue, uh, especially with, you know, the gas price increasing and everything. So, I mean, the setup of a co-op is, is certainly nothing foreign to Quebec. I mean, a large part of our province was initially built on co-ops and whether that was uh, uh, food, food services, you know, animal services, uh, banking. I mean, the co-op has been kind of the core to, to the Quebec economy for a very long time. You're playing on, I guess, an, an old model, but maybe explain how that benefits people. Not everybody really understands what, what, what the co-op does, not only for the members, but you know, what that means at the end of a year, or at the end of a period. Well, first thing that I think we need to clarify, a co-op is a company. A lot of people think that you know, co-ops are some sort of non-profits. I mean, we're, we are for profit. We want to make profit so that you know, all the members benefit from these surplus. Uh, so through our model of built-in governance, what we're looking to do is redefining the gig economy with this new social contract we're building with both rider members and driver members. Essentially, a co-op enables every member within that company to have uh, a, access to governance. Every member has a voting power. And this is powerful. This changes everything. It's a simple but profound difference that we're providing to especially driver members. We're enabling them to have a direct decision-making power on every aspect of the business. Be like you know, the policies, the budget, 
uh, the, the new features in the app and, and whatnot. So uh, really, it's essentially a traditional company, but with all the users having a voting power. This is a co-op. And to us, this is powerful. And Eva, as a company, we're essentially franchising our technologies of you know, rideshare and delivery to co-ops. Could be also like tech, local taxi companies, could be local delivery companies. But our goal is to always, always, always at our core, foster and promote sustainable and socially responsible relationships with, between drivers, riders, and local businesses. And, and that's, I think, our biggest strength. This is how, over the last year, with you know, the advent of the, our delivery services, we were able to gather like 1.5,000 restaurants and retailers uh, in Montreal. So if you look at the greatest restaurants in Montreal right now, if you order through their own online ordering website to support them, well, most of them, as of now, are delivered by Eva. And this is tremendous. And we're really proud of this. And this network has also been built with various partnerships with different uh, uh, local companies. So if you take local companies like, you know, uh, uh, Checkley Sunday, uh, Resto Loco, Peasley, and, and all these other online ordering platforms like you eat, uh, we're integrating our, our, our software to these platforms, enabling restaurants to do commission-free deliveries. So it's instead of like taking them 30% or 20%, so really we're, we want to make sure that all actors involved in our ecosystem are fairly treated. And this is you know, our cooperative uh, uh, ecosystem. One thing you mentioned, the social contract, and, and that I think is an interesting point because so many of your competitors, the multinational uh, ride sharing or mobility platforms, pretty much are projecting that automation is the way to go in the future, right? That they're going to be drones and, and vehicles delivering stuff and humans are sort of uh, a, a bump in the road to that to that future. What is your take on the automation question? And will humans always be uh, in the loop for you? Well, of course, this is something that uh, will arrive at some point. And I think this is great. I mean, this brings a lot of great challenges uh, and also a lot of great questions, like should we tax the robots and, and how we as you know, a society should deal with all these, these, these new uh, algorithms and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but it's not happening in the next five years. I mean, look at the roads in Montreal. I, I don't want to be like criticizing them, but like, like I, I cannot imagine having like all self-driving cars driving around this. I mean, uh, they'll get lost and, and, and you know, with, with the weather and whatnot. So we still have like years ahead of us and we cannot just base a model based, you know, with a, like a predatory model uh, and trying to take as much as we can from uh, workers, drivers, uh, I mean, maybe in 25 years from now, there's going to be like more self-driving cars. And this is really exciting. And this is part of the reason why we, since day one, we've, we've established ourselves on a blockchain-based technology because we want to be uh, sure that we have the safest method of sharing data and connecting to other platforms. Uh, but uh, I think the bet that many companies did 10 years ago was like, hey, by 2020, all cars will be, you know, uh, autonomous and everybody will, you know, will get delivered by drones and, and stuff like this, but we're not there yet. And it's going to take a while before we get there. This is really exciting. Again, we, we have a lot of challenges. What we are trying to improve here is the working conditions of those providing the ride-sharing delivery services, the gig workers. 
And then maybe in 10 years, we can, uh, we can meet again uh, in a different uh, podcast and discuss about automation. But right now, it's not, it's not there yet, uh, especially like with all the uh, uh, factors of considerations that we need to uh, think about. Um, but it is exciting. It is exciting. And we're looking forward to it. Uh, and also to have like, we also need to imagine what is a, 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 a fair transition from a traditional model to an automated model. So, uh, Dan, I'm looking forward to uh, to asking Peter at the end of our session, um, you know, how he wants to tax a robot. I think that's a fascinating concept that, you know, we're, we're going to have to uh, deal with. But I think Pete's OK. He's got a, probably a few weeks before he has to worry about that one. Um, you know, I, uh, Dardan, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, uh, again, this is a, a play on, on a relatively, you know, basic non-tech play on the ride share or, you know, the taxi delivery service, um, which really the more I listen to and the more I read, is is really a, a re- really heavy tech play and, and I think but from your governance to you know as you mentioned data privacy and everything else and blockchain there is a significant amount of, of tech behind this and you know if somebody was to ask you tomorrow are you a, are you a rideshare service or are you technology play what would you what would you answer that so the way we've structured Eva as I mentioned so Eva is a kind of a two-layered uh, movement. On the first layer, we have the tech company. We're providing, we're building this blockchain-powered ride-sharing delivery technology. On the other layer, we have what we refer to as the social franchises, which are the uh, entities operating the technology. So in Quebec, for instance, we have Montreal. So we have our head office in Montreal building and developing this technology. And in the same province, we have the operator, which is the co-op in Quebec, which is essentially uh, operating this technology, which is implementing this technology in a given market. So uh, at first, I'd say we're at, uh, a tech company trying to build, uh, trying to be, well, being part of the Web3 uh, you know, wave of, uh, of thinking and building a, a technology that's more open and that's, that treats human fairly. And on the other end, of course, uh, we're, we're a mobility uh, company without any any doubt. I mean, we're transporting the most precious thing. We're transporting humans uh, all across the city, and this is this is, I think, one thing that really makes me proud when I see Eva stickers. You know, uh, when I'm driving, uh, I still have a car, but uh, <laughs> when I'm driving around and I see Eva stickers, and or myself when I drive uh, riders around, I'm I'm super excited every time. It's it's a software used by. Uh, thousands of people in Montreal, and this is this is this is tremendous for us. We're chatting with Dardan Sufi. He's the co-founder of Eva. It is uh, well a lot of things. It's a mobility app. It's a delivery app and ride sharing, and it's also a co-op. So we're exploring that interesting model as well. And coming up later in the show, we'll be speaking with PJ Moretis, tax partner at FL, about co-op models, uh, how they work, uh, what it implies for taxes, and how they're organized. That's all on the way. Um, but first, Dardan, in terms of your future with um, sort of in Quebec's business ecosystem, in recent years there have been a lot of uh, issues with the big ones, the big multinationals, and a lot of competition between government. I'm sure you've spoken to many governments around Quebec, especially, that are thrilled with your presence because a lot of this ride-sharing money is going right outside of Quebec um, into foreign accounts. And uh, your presence is probably a, a really positive sign that, uh, that our tech environment can sustain this sort of um, cooperative model. What uh, what what have has been your your experience dealing with governments and how how have they reacted to Eva? Well, pretty well to be honest, and, and I guess we're lucky. But uh, both you know the federal government or the provincial government or even the municipal government 
have been pretty and are still pretty open about uh, our, uh, our, our case. Uh, I mean, I think they realize that these fundamental phenomena uh, of you know, the uberization of the economy are inevitable, going beyond the borders of Montreal. And we must not fool ourselves. We must stand up because uh, the corollary of innovation is the disruptions to which we must adapt. And I think EVA is the result of this adaptation process. And we're, we're bringing a change to this uberization of the economy by neutralization, by forming uh, a, a, more, a more sustainable and fair way to, to work things around. And what we really wanted to apply early on was the true principles of, of the sharing economy uh, and, and how we can, with the digital tools, facilitate and multiply transactions between riders, drivers, businesses like retailers and restaurants, and, and, and operate a change of scale by making any service available to anyone anywhere. So uh, we like governments have been pretty receptive, uh, and we have good, I think, good allies in the three pillars of governments, municipal and, and, and provincial and federal. So far, it has been really great, and we've noticed this because a couple of years ago, uh, you know, before COVID, we used to travel a lot, and we met with different mayors and city uh, administrators, and then when we were asking them, "What are your main challenges or issues?" And the same answer kept coming back, was like Uber and Airbnb. And then we realized that with Ava, we're kind of solving one of these, you know, this big uh, headache that was how, how to deal, how to cope with Uber. It's a company that, that wasn't listening to any regulation that was, uh, you know, ditching the, the, the taxi industry. So how to cope with Uber? And then, you know, Ava just, you know, arrived and, and we're, we were doing it and we, we did it and we're, we're doing it right now. And it is possible. It is possible to have a, a fair alternative. And that's it. <laughs> so, so a lot of positive feedback from the government. So explain to me why to this day, ride shares like Ava are still not allowed to use the, the, ta the tax and the bus, taxi and bus lanes from downtown Montreal to the airport. Uh, I don't have the reason because I cannot understand it myself. Uh, to be honest, this is a pretty unfair uh, situation right now. We're in talk with the Bureau de Taxi de Montréal and also the uh, uh, Transport Commission of Quebec and the Transport Minister of Quebec because uh, since the new regulation around you know, ride-share and taxi, both taxi drivers and let's say Uber and Eva drivers are at the same level. We're paying the same fees and we're paying all the same trainings. We're going through the same process. So we think it's unfair to block this, I'd say, privilege. And when we think about, you know, uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and, and optimizing uh, transportation, it's part of the solution. We need to incentivize people to carpool and to ride share. And I think uh, taxi lanes on the, on the highway should also be accessible to EVA drivers. We're working on it. Uh, also, our driver members are putting a lot of pressure on us to actually uh, take action. So uh, it's, it's a work in progress. Right. So I, fi I figured that would touch a nerve. So I, I, I figured that was a good point. Um, so, you know, you've been talking since the beginning about the technology base, the, uh, you know, uh, 
the governance model, the co-op method. I mean, this sounds to me like there is a much bigger opportunity in this world than just staying within the borders of Quebec and growing within Quebec. You know, what are your plans to grow and how do you take the technology and the, and the infrastructure that you've created and multiply that out, whether it's across Canada or elsewhere? Well, that's, that, that's a good question. And I think that's a big challenge uh, we faced early on. So how to keep our, our, our movement local but are also scaling it up globally. And we came up with you know, this, this idea of social refranchising ever. So we you know, took as an example McDonald's, which you know, is, is franchising its, 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 its restaurant, its menu through various uh, franchisees uh, across the world. But we wanted to do the same in a socially responsible manner. So we're actually uh, in the process of uh, launching in Toronto and in Calgary, so in the Alberta market and also Ontario market, uh, uh, with you know our, our the idea of, of franchising our, our software and uh, enable drivers there uh, and also you know retailers, restaurants, and, and community to benefit from uh, another another mobility service. Because at the end of the day, when you Consider all the transportation issues. I mean, the only solution is the multiplicity of alternatives. And we're, we're one of them. We're only one alternative. I mean, Uber can be great, Lyft can be great, and then and, and Bixi is great, the STM is great, and Eva is great. I mean, it's, it's just another option that Montrealers have to move from point A to point B or to get things delivered. So we're, uh, we're working right now uh, to, uh, to franchise our model. And also across the globe, I mean, there's no limit. Uh, it's it's only a question of will. Um, so the I guess I guess the question is is as you look to franchise, are you looking to franchise the philosophical approach to uh, what has made Eva, uh, you know, the co-op, the governance model, and everything else, or would you be looking at franchising the technology and the platform? Because I'm not sure everybody gets the co-op model as well as uh, as we do certainly in Quebec. Well, uh, in the process of, of scaling up and going into other markets, we're, uh, we're essentially franchising the technology. Uh, this technology can be uh, franchised to a local taxi company, a local delivery company, uh, or also a co-op. So we're not, we're not limited to co-ops, although uh, we believe that the cooperative way is, is, is a great way to handle this very specific uh, business because it's it comes naturally to just bring people together and, and, and empower them with, you know, within the governance, but it's not limited to co-ops. Uh, our goal is really to have, uh, uh, the, just add a better and, and, and a more fair alternative to a uh, traditional ride share. All right, Dardan is Sufi. Uh, you're going to hang around. We're going to have your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur, please, in a few minutes. But first, we turn to our tax expert, Peter Joseph Moretis. He is the tax partner at FL Montreal, here to talk about co-ops and uh, their implications for uh, your business model. Peter, what are your thoughts on uh, on co-ops? Thanks, Dan. Um, it's a pleasure to be on, actually, with, uh, with Eva. A lot of times we think of co-ops and we think of smaller organizations or very large ones like even uh, Desjardins or other um, agricultural. From the tax angle is that um, despite the fact that their goal is not to necessarily have huge profits and pay it to the shareholders, they do have a goal to be profitable and successful. It's just that uh, it's the, the sharing of it is more based on, uh, on the membership or on the, on the usage or their, uh, or their suppliers. Um, so because they have that, the, the fact that they're not a nonprofit, they do have to pay um, uh, taxes and they'll generally file for corporate taxes. 
Um, and one of the differences is uh, because of their governance is that they're, they're able to either redistribute through um, what you've, anybody who's seen a Desjardins statement sees a ristourne or a, what we call a patronage uh, dividend, which they're able to deduct um, on their returns. So it's all, it's generally when we think of dividends or, or returns, it's, it's treated differently from tax purposes, but for co-ops, it's treated as if it's an expense. Um, and, and also I was thinking from, uh, from the, the entrepreneur, generally we always thought of your own private business, grow it and maybe, uh, have an expansion and growth. But I think with, with today's environment, this is something that's going to be as much as before it was done for different reasons, whether it's banking or agriculture or different industries, I could see it's something where because of things like blockchain, where people can uh, raise capital through crowdfunding um, or through members themselves, I could see this being something for entrepreneurs that have a more uh, social aspect and want to really care for their customer base or their, um, their, their employees. Um, something that we'll see a lot more in the future. Um, and like, like I was saying, from a, from a tax perspective, they're a company just like any other. Uh, it's, it's funny to hear Dardan kind of mention that uh, one of the reasons for the creation of this was his comparison to Uber and its tax issues with sales taxes and how it was treating its drivers, maybe from a, uh, from a self-employed or employee. And, um, and this is the same thing for the, the co-ops we'll have to live with. It's an interesting question, though, Pete, because you, you look at, like I said, you go back to the whole basis of co-op, which was very much founded in a community-based uh, initiative. Um, and when you listen to Dardan talk, he, he, you know, it, it, as well, it's, it's a community-based initiative at the end of the day. You know, the government, as you're saying, is taxing them uh, the same as they would at a corporate level. Has there been any talk at all? I mean, obviously, if you go back to taxation of co-ops uh, way back when they started, you would have been talking about the church and in and, and, and various different ways. But have there been any talks about treating co-ops differently? Um, and what are the effects on the individual uh, who happens to be a mem member, or is there any effect on an individual? Uh, so there, there's been there's been talks or there's been changes in legislations that have allowed certain co-ops uh, to be eligible for let's say the small business deduction, which is a very low corporate tax rate. Right now it's like in the in the twelve percent, fifteen percent. So a co-op could make a decision not to redistribute all of its all of its profit because uh, it can pay off debt, let's say, which you know lowers profit for the members in the future. Um, so, but there hasn't been anything specific in terms of like not taxing them necessarily, um, if, if their goal is, um, for profit, but, and then in terms of the, the members, I really think that depends what their use is. If you're a driver and you're getting a, a rebate based on the, or an, an, an add on based on the volume that you've done, that will probably, you'll, you'll be taxed on that just like any other type of, uh, payment from, from Eva or from, uh, other co-ops. And as a customer base, it's just a reduction of your cost. So it, it, won't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily, because it's not in the view of earning a, biz, uh, of earning a profit, um, just like getting a rebate from your Desjardins bank account, there's really, it's, it's non-taxable to the, to the customer. Peter Joseph Moretis, tax partner at FL on Co-ops. Thanks very much, Peter. Thanks, Dan. And as we head to the end of our show, let's turn to our entrepreneur, Dardan Isufi, and ask for his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. Dardan, your thoughts. I'll just put some context around this piece of advice uh, because 
when we started Eva, uh, Rafa and I were, I think I was 20 and he was like 21 or something. And we were young. Uh, I was at McGill, he was at Laval University. Uh, we didn't know much about business and, and, and whatnot. And we just started Eva a bit without really thinking of the long term. We just wanted to get some results. And we thought that building an app would take us two months and that building a network of drivers would take us like two weeks. Uh, it took us two years. But uh, actually, uh, it reminded me like this entire journey reminded me of, of uh, one quote from uh, Mikhail Bukanin, which is this Russian author that once wrote that it's, it's by seeking the impossible that we humans realize the possible. Those who are wisely limited to what seemed impossible to them never advance a single step. And, you know, when we started EVA and we were telling people, yeah, we're, we're here to, uh, to tackle down the, you know, the issue of, of Uber, it's, people were kind of laughing around us. They were like, well, it's impossible. Like, how do you guys want to compete with a multi-billion company? And we realized that it always seems impossible until it's done. And we did it. And I think the advice is just do it. Uh, just, just try it out uh, and move forward. And this is how things, this is how things advance. And worst case scenario, we're going to learn something and that's, we just need to try it. And Mike, an example of an entrepreneur team, actually, which is part uh, political philosophy and part tech. So a really interesting combination. And Eva, congratulations, Dardenne. Well, thanks a lot. Fascinating, uh, fascinating approach. I, I like the co-op model. I think it like it get, certainly plays into the roots of this province. And you know, your one piece of advice at the end kind of you know uh, stuck out uh, since it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Dan, in terms of not necessarily understanding business basics. You know, when you think it's going to take you two weeks to do something, and and not understanding where to go. So it's 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 uh, you know, I guess a lesson most entrepreneurs have learned. Uh, some of them harder than others. So fascinating to have you on, Dale, Dan, and thank you so much. Well, thanks a lot for having me. And I invite anyone listening to this to just download the Eva app on both uh, Google Play Store and Apple Store. Thanks. Dardan Isufi from Eva Co-op. And don't forget uh, that you can head over to todaysentrepreneur.org for hundreds of local profiles. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. Next week, we'll be talking with Guillaume Parrault from Galea. He wants to make art accessible all around the world. We'll see you then. Talk.